Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, Episode 7, Frequency. Hello again, everyone. I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher of On Milwaukee, and I'm joined by aviation journalist Jeff Wise. I'm so excited, Andy. Great to be back with you. This is a big, huge episode, and I know that I've said that in every episode, but I mean it this time. This one is a big, huge one. This is the crux. This is, this is the one on which the whole story hinges. It's an important one. It's an exciting one. I'm glad that we've, we, we've gotten to this juncture. This is a part of the mystery that very few people actually understand this part of the evidence. And there's, a, off a, there's an awful lot of, of ideas and theories that are floating out there about MH370. And very, very few of them incorporate an understanding of how this data works, how it's generated, and how it's interpreted. So we're going to get into that today. And we're going to take it, you know, at a measured pace. This is certainly something that all of our listeners are going to be interested to know about. And it's, and it's, it's going to be um, fun and easy. Not totally easy, but we're going to make it not unpleasant. It's like, I don't want you to think like going to your, like college calculus class or anything. It's all going to be in very, in very sort of normal. It's detailed. Terms. Okay. So I'm, I'm not going to use the word yeah. nerdy on this one. It's, but it is detailed. And uh, this is one where you should, and again, with the aviation puns, you should buckle in because we're going we're gonna to talk <laughs> about some serious stuff. And I'd like to point out that my role yeah. today is to play the role of the listener because you've been working on this for nine and a half years and the stuff that we're going to talk about, and I'll stop previewing it and just talk about it, um, is you understand it better than anyone else, you and a couple of experts, uh, but um, it's it, it's taken me a long time to, to get to the level of even understanding it casually this episode. So right. um, I may right. ask you a lot of questions that seem obvious to you, but they may not be obvious to other people. No, no, I, I've talked to you about this a lot and you have very good questions and I and, and they're, you know, um, well considered and, and, and well put. Um, the core idea of this podcast is we're trying to bring people into the MH370 mystery, which is a kind of technical mystery, and allow them to really have the tools to understand what ideas are plausible and what ideas are not plausible and to allow them to really come to an informed consideration of what might have happened to this plane, which is a lot less broad than people generally think about. So we're, um, and this, this one is really, I, I was saying to you earlier that, you know, we're kind of going through a doorway today. And once you walk through this doorway, the whole kind of kingdom of MH370 reality-based hypotheses comes into view. And it's, 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 there's a lot more clarity than people generally realize, which leads me to another point I wanted to make, which is this podcast is structured differently from a lot of other podcasts. It's um, it's not just an open-ended chat where we talk about whatever happens to be crossing um, our field of vision today. Um, we're talking about a very specific thing, but it's also not a kind of close-ended, like thirteen episodes, you know, beginning to end and then stop that you can like, yeah, it, you know, listen. Yeah, to I mean, there, there's no end to this. Uh, I mean, maybe the end is when it's all over, but uh, this isn't a ten-episode run. We're going to keep doing this until we get to a point where we feel like we've told the story and we've answered the questions. So. Uh, yes, yeah, some people in the comments have said you're moving too slowly. Some people in the comments have said you're moving too quickly, but it's very well thought out. Um, at least I think it's well thought out. But the point is just that you, you, you might get more out of this if you listen from the beginning and because it is sort of layered one upon the other. But I do think that we should, you know, with each episode, just kind of locate ourselves within the frame of the overall mystery so that if you are coming new to it, 
it will make some sense. Yeah. So let's do that right now. This is and we're, we're hyping this thing up, but we got to get through just a tiny bit of house cleaning because we are in episode seven already, which means that if you're just watching this now, you might be a little confused for the first time. Um, so first of all, we're, we're putting this out every Thursday and it is existing on multiple platforms. If you are an audio listener only, it's on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to watch the video version, which we recommend, it's on both YouTube and Facebook. And we're going to be putting links to all those things. We also have an accompanying website, uh, deepdivemh370.com, which is uh, on the Substack platform. And that's kind of interesting because there is an option to subscribe uh, to our newsletter um, and even make a donation. It's, uh, it's 8 bucks a month or $80 a year. And we should point out that while we are entrepreneurs and, um, you know, not doing this just out of the kindness of our heart. Uh, we're gonna we're taking the revenue that's coming from that, and we're putting it right back into the podcast, both both in terms of technology and also promoting it. Um, and a whole bunch of people have already subscribed, which is really wonderful, and we appreciate that. Yeah, it's really great. I particularly want to give a shout out to our paid subscribers. These are people who really, you know, uh, putting their money where their mouth is and supporting us um, with you know, paid subscriptions, which is great. And so I just want to thank. Uh, Cap, Capped Ken, T Squared 58, and Joyce Hug 43. You guys, really, it's um, it's helpful to us, you know, to in order to like buy some ads for this, to, so more people can hear it. Um, but it's just sort of wind in our sails to to, to get that kind of. It's super fun. So it's super you. fun, and and let's dive right into it. I just said another airplane yeah. pun again. I can't help it, Jeff. It's just like <laughs> diving, buckling, taking off. All Shame that. I don't on mean you. to do it. It just keeps happening. Um, so you're a bad I, I person. Let's really quickly, and then I promise we're going into it. Let's recap what we talked about last week because okay. we went a little bit off script. Okay. We did talk about uh, some readers' comments, uh, particularly from Victor Anello. But um, tell me a little bit about what we talked about and, and, and where we're going this week. So we've been watching as the plane took off from Beijing, flew to Malaysia, turned back. All the electronics went dark. It flipped the Malacca Strait. It was on military radar. Um, and then... We spent a lot of time talking about how the SATCOM system came, it turned back on. And we, we spent last week talking about how that could have happened and whether that was very weird or maybe not that weird. Um, and so now we're at a point where, and then we also have talked about what some of this metadata means. We talked about half of the metadata, what's called the burst timing offset, and we explained how that gave a sense of these ping rings and that, that from that scientists derived a sense of the roots. So now we're gonna talk about the second set, which is called burst Frequency offset or BFR. Okay, so you'll recall on March 15th, 2014, the Malaysian Prime Minister held a press conference and he announced that Inmarsat, the uh, British based uh, satellite uh, company, had collected data and it, the plane had flown on for six more hours after it had disappeared from radar. And the Inmarsat satellite uh, scientists had already analyzed the first set of data, the BTO, to determine that it went north or south. And then um, he gave this press conference on March 24th that said they had devised a new mathematical technique to, to determine that the plane had gone south. Let's, let's play that. This is a remote location, far from any possible landing sites. It is therefore with deep sadness and regret that I must inform you that according to this new data, flight MH370 
ended in the southern Indian Ocean. So, right. So, to recap, they had already figured out that the plane went either north or south, but they didn't know which. The first set of metadata gave them a very specific route, but it also gave the mirror image of that route, and they didn't know what, which one was correct. Now, with this new set of data, BFO, it said, okay, this, this allows us through some mathematics that must have been very hairy because it took them weeks, but they've managed to crack this mathematical nut, and now we know that it went south. So they've announced that like the plane definitely went south, which means it went into the ocean. Therefore, everyone is dead, which is quite a thing to lay on the the you know the family members, and they kind of went. They freaked out. Uh, and who blames them? And it was horrible. Yeah. Uh, and it was based on um, these scientists and these mathematicians' um, understanding of BFO, which. Uh, that's not one of those terms that uh, average people would know what BFO data is, but you do. So I think you should explain it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't know what it was. I mean, nobody had heard, when when the officials made this announcement, we all felt like, OK, you're telling us that you've solved this riddle. But what how do we how do we know that what you're saying is true? I mean, you, you seem like nice people. But, you know, we, we, you've been a little bit um, fuzzy about some of the things you've said in the past, and we don't know if we completely believe you. So we'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but we really want to try to understand what you are saying. And it took two months. It, they finally released the data. They finally gave some clues about their explanation. And finally, people working together on the Internet, this is a story I've told before, but people had various expertises that they brought together and they shared on various forums and websites, and one of them was my personal website, jeffwise.net, and also through emails with, with one another. And basically, they pieced together a sense of what was going on with this data. Now, until that happened, I myself, I have to confess, I really thought that the plane most likely went north. And just pretty much for, for one reason, which is that we've already been talking about how the way that this plane behaved suggested that somebody had taken it who was sophisticated and that they knew how to like they knew how to fly a plane for one thing. They also knew about communications. They knew where the boundaries of airspace was and all of these things. It sounded like somebody who really knew a lot about planes and flying and satellite communications and so forth. But it also seemed to me that they were motivated, that they had taken this plane, done a dramatic turn, flew really fast. It just seemed like somebody whose mindset was very action-oriented and very very results-oriented, not like someone who wanted to commit suicide. There's lots of cases of people who have, not a lot, there's a handful, like a few, less than five examples of people who we know have taken a plane and crashed into the ground. But those people usually just crash it as quickly as they can. They don't fly for six hours until the fuel runs out. So to me, it just seemed like these are people who would want to go to land. So I wanted to write a piece about that this plane went north to Kazakhstan. And my editor was like, everyone else says it went south. Don't you feel worried about that? And I was like, listen, if I'm wrong, I will write a, an apology. <laughs> I will apologize to the world for speculating that it went north. To make a long story short, when the uh, prime minister made this announcement, I was like, okay, I know it sounds like I'm wrong, but let me just try to figure out this BFO data. So let me just confirm for myself that what he's saying is true, that I believe it too. And so she let me take a couple more weeks to kind of sort through the math. And I finally sorted through the math and I understood it. And I wrote a column saying, I apologize. Yeah, that was a, I read that and that must not have been fun to do. But, you know, it's, you had, you, you made you know, your you promise. Take your yeah, so, so you did that. And to recap, the reason you thought it might have gone 
to Kazakhstan was because of the ping rings, which we discussed in episode five, I believe. So the, the, the right. terminus of, of where this flight could have gone was either in Central Asia or it was in the Southern Indian Ocean. Um, but once right. you... So it wasn't completely crazy. Yeah, you didn't it just pick that country like later, out of a later, No. And later some people would say, oh, I think it went to San um, Diego Garcia which is someplace completely different that there's no evidence whatever it went there. That is sort of groundless. But mine actually was, wasn't that crazy. It was like, it was, we knew it was in one of two places and I just thought it was in one. Most people thought it was in the other. It was very respectable. But once, this, once the prime minister made this announcement saying we've solved, we've, we've done this math. Okay, so today, mostly what we're going to talk about today is why I was wrong. Why I did this, how I did this math. Yeah. So to do that, you have to understand what BFO data is. Um, and it involves the right. Doppler effect, which now I feel like I'm in like, you know, eighth grade science here. Um, <laughs> if you, it involves the Doppler effect and some other. Things. Yeah. Yeah. I would say geosynchronous orbit is one which of I did not learn in eighth grade, but I did learn about the Doppler effect. And the easiest way that uh, the thing that I think about with the Doppler effect is is the train horn. How how you you know you right. hear it starting at a high pitch, and then as it drives past you, you hear a low pitch, kind of like this video. So what we saw there was the Doppler effect in action. When two bodies are moving towards each other, it has the effect of making a frequent, the frequency go up, whether it's sound, as in this case, or light, uh, or you know, radio waves are a kind of, of light. And radio waves are how satellites communicate with airplanes. And so the, the, the reason the Doppler effect matters in this case is because when satellite engineers designed this system, they were allocated a frequency band um, with which they were allowed to communicate with their users on the ground. So imagine you're up 23,000 miles above the Earth. This is the ge geometry at which if you orbit the Earth at this altitude, your speed will match the rotation of the Earth. So it's very handy if you want to be a communication satellite. You can basically just park yourself over a certain spot and everyone knows you're there. And anyone who wants to talk to Inmarsat can just point their antenna at you and there you are, and you, it's very handy. You're like a, sky, it's like a sky hook. You're just this point in the sky. Um, and so you're looking down from this high altitude and you're looking down over a huge portion of the earth. I mean, this satellite is basically covering the entire Indian Ocean yeah. Basin, which includes East Africa, the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, um, a huge, huge area, many, many, you know, billions of people and billions of radio frequency devices, everything from, you know, um, garage door openers to cell phones to, you know, so many devices use radio frequencies, RFID tags, etc. Yeah, the radio frequency spectrum, um, that's a separate conversation for a different day. But, you know, that's that's why, you know, cell phones spend billions of dollars to buy their little piece or cell phone companies buy their little piece right. of the frequency. So uh, the yeah. satellite has a very narrow, has a very narrow band, right? So, um the, the planes need to stay within this yeah. band. And I equate it to, right. um, to, to like AM radio, for example. Like if I'm listening to a baseball game right. in, in Milwaukee uh, and right. the station is 620, I can hear it at 620 clearly. If I you know, 
if I had an old-fashioned radio and I tweaked it to 622, 625, I could hear it a little less, and sooner or later you lose the signal and it turns into something else. Right. So they, uh, the, the satellite engineers have to deal with that as well, right, Jeff? That's right. So they're looking, they've, they've been allocated this narrow frequency band, and they're looking down at this huge swath of the Earth, and they are looking for this exact specific frequency. And so they can ignore everything else. But this presents a problem, because remember, all of these planes are moving around. Ships are moving around too, but not as fast, so it doesn't create as much of an effect. But these planes are moving towards and away as they move around, as they go about their, their daily business. They're moving to and from, and that relative velocity is going to change the frequency that the, that the satellite antenna is going to receive that uh, signal at. So say it's 620. You may use the example of 620. Right. So say it's they're looking for 620 and the plane is broadcasting at 620, but because the plane is moving towards the satellite, that 620 becomes 624. Say. Yeah. Now it's the wrong frequency. Right. So it would make it more difficult to keep an eye on it because it's not where it's supposed to be. But they have accomplished right. uh, a technology for dealing with this. Yeah, they did a kind of clever thing. It's not super clever, but... I think it's, it's pretty got, clever. It's, it's name is... It's, that's, you know... It's okay. All right, you're right. It's clever. But it has, it has a name that's a mouthful, so it sounds a little intimidating. It's called Doppler precompensation. And what this means is that if, if the, plane know, the plane knows that it's moving, it knows where the satellite is, and it knows that because it's moving, it's going to send a signal that's going to be received at the wrong frequency... And so if I send it at 620 and it arrives at 624, that's a problem. So, hmm, what if I send it at 616 and by the time it gets to the satellite, it's now been bumped up to 620 and voila, the problem is gone. The satellite's getting the signal at the frequency it likes. Doppler precompensation. Okay. I mean, does that make sense? That's pretty not even that complicated. It actually right? makes a ton of sense to me. You know, the plane itself okay. is adjusting. I don't know. It feels like a CB, like adjusting the squelch or something like yeah. that. Where, yeah. Well, okay, maybe I'm not. Okay, I'm not a CB guy, but so squelch might be the wrong word. Sorry, <laughs> but it's a, you, you, yeah. like you're adjusting something so it falls within the accepted parameters, and therefore right. you get it at the signal uh, at the frequency that you're supposed to. So, right. Exactly. I, I frankly think you have um, an even cooler analogy that you wrote about. Okay. Uh, I just love this story okay. so much. Uh, <laughs> Because it's kind of funny. And I, it's, it's the foghorn in the drunken brother-in-law who steals your boat story. And I feel like we would be remiss, because we're not in a hurry here, if you didn't tell this story to explain uh, speed versus velocity versus Doppler versus... Just, could you please tell the story? I love it. I was, yeah, so I was trying to find an analogy that might feel more relatable to people. And I don't know if this is relatable or not, but I was, I was saying, like, imagine that you, are, you have this lake house and you have a drunken brother-in-law, and he steals your boat, your motorboat, and he's zooming around in the lake, and that's frustrating to you because you really want to know where your expensive, beloved boat is. And he's zooming around, and he's so drunk that he's sort of blasting a foghorn as he's driving around. And you shout, you jerk, you stole my boat, and every time you yell at him, he honks back in return. Now, imagine that you know how quickly he, it takes him to respond you can, just from the speed of sound and how long it takes, you can figure out how far away he is from you. That's the BTO part. 
that make sense? Yeah, it totally did. Um, but then you add in the Doppler side of it, which is if the, the right. tone of the air horn is different, you can make certain assertions or assumptions. Uh, the, the volume of it is different. Right. You can make different assumptions. So it's 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 not it's not unlike the guy the brother-in-law tooting his horn. You don't necessarily know exactly where he is, but you can get a sense of where he is based on how he's farting around with his air horn. Right, exactly. And so if he, you know if the if the um, foghorn frequency goes down, then he's moving away from you, and if it goes up, he must be moving towards you. What's happening with this um, with this Doppler precompensation is a little different, and it's a little more subtle. Um, so the question we have to ask next is, okay, we know that this plane, this, the, the SD, the satellite dating unit, is performing this Doppler precompensation. And the question is, how is it doing it? And there's actually two answers to that question. There's two different manufacturers that make these boxes. And one of them compensates it one way and another does it the other way. The first way is, is used by a company called Rockwell. And they make an um, a, a SDU that uses a very simple method. They measure the frequency coming in from the satellite. They see what the error is there, and they just they just assume that since the relative velocity is the same no matter which way you're heading, they just flip it around. And so if they're expecting 620 from the satellite and they get 624, they just subtract it and broadcast it back at 616. Okay, simple. Um, for whatever reason, the other company, which is called Talus, um, they use a different procedure. They actually calculate using navigational information that the plane has, namely, this is where I am, what direction I'm going, and how fast I'm flying. And I know where the satellite is, and I can use that. Now, this is a lot of math. For me, I would be disgruntled because this is going to take a lot of time for me with a pencil and paper. But for a computer, it's pretty easy. They just they run the numbers in a microsecond, and then boom. And they can calculate it. Okay, so, yeah. So, uh, first of all, MHC70 did use Talus and not Rockwell, right? Okay, right. which, you know, is a kind of a, a little bit of a bummer because in, in the in the world of coincidences, you know, here I am in Milwaukee and Rockwell Automation is based in Milwaukee. So, uh, I have had lunch with the CEO of, of Rockwell uh, in his at private dining room in his tower, Blake Moray. So I, I could call him up if this was, um, if this was. Did you guys talk about Doppler pre It totally didn't even come up, but, but you know, it would have had it come up what? now. So next time I have lunch with him, I'm talking about that. Okay. But uh, MH370 used the Talos um, uh, SDU. Right. So this is un this is un this is unlucky for Milwaukee, but it's lucky for MH370 investigators. Because, as we'll talk about later, the fact that it was Talus and not Rockwell actually means a completely different outcome for the whole MH370. Yeah. Okay. So please keep going on here because so much, so much. <laughs> I feel like we're probably like, right, we're going to have to just blow past, I think, our time limit on this This might one be a long one. I, 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 but I think it's okay. worthwhile. I, I think we're like keeping it to a, a decent, um, you know, level of. We'll find know, out. Understandability, <laughs> if that's yeah. the word. Um, we'll see. I guess tell us in the comments. Uh, okay, so now we've got this Doppler precompensation, and so if the system is working properly, 
then it, all of the signals will arrive at the satellite at exactly the correct frequency. And this is what the BFO value is there to measure. The satellite engineers are always looking to record this because they want to make sure that their system is working properly. They want to record the BFO. And it's like looking at your oil temperature on your car. It's like, you, you, you know, you just want to make sure your oil temperature is in the right thing because if it goes out of whack, you need to take it into the shop. So they have this thing. They just record the BFO value to make sure that it's staying in that frequency parameter that they've been allocated. Now, it should always be zero. It's like your, your car oil temperature should always be right at the proper line, and the BFO value should always be zero because the, the system should be working perfectly. However, and if that had been the case, again, this whole mystery would have taken a very different course. The system was not working. Which is an absolutely amazing, call it a coincidence, call it not a coincidence, but the fact that right. the satellite was not as stationary as it was supposed to be because it was an old, right. about to be decommissioned or should have been decommissioned, technically obsolete satellite that was running low on fuel, it once again right. changes everything. There's yet another twist right. in this story. Yeah. The, the wobbly I mean, satellite the thing. Like, just, yeah, just please enlighten enlighten the listeners and viewers. The devil is in the details, which is why we're having this podcast. It's all in the details. And here's a really interesting detail. As you say, the satellite was old. Now, when you launch a satellite like this, you put it into orbit, and if you give it the right velocity, it will be over that point, and it will stay over the same spot every single day. But nothing's perfect in life. You know, maybe this, the radiation is shining on it, or maybe there's some solar wind or something, and the thing starts to drift. It starts to get out of whack. And so what you do is you have a bit of fuel on board called hydrazine, and it basically lets you shoot little jets of correcting rocket exhaust so that you can push yourself back to where you need to be. Now, these things can only carry so much hydrazine, and eventually you start to run out, and then you start to wobble. You start to make a kind of figure-eight pattern up and down above the equator, and you, and you go higher and higher and faster and faster until the whole thing becomes useless, and then it's, it has to be decommissioned entirely. This thing was not yet decommissioned. Before you go on, can I just ask you how the hell you know about how satellite fuel? I mean, <laughs> how much time in your life have you? This, we, nobody knew. I, I mean, I, I, I didn't. I didn't know any of this except until MA370 happened. We were like, what are they talking about when they say that the BFO value tells them that it went south? And all the, all the things I'm telling you today are things that we the collectively, the independent group and other um, independent investigators on the internet manage to kind of scour and find the data and find the explanation. And there are people out there who's every morning they wake up and they put on their pants and they go to manage a fleet of communication satellites. It's normal for them. It's super weird and arcane to us. But for somebody, every every weird arcane thing we talk about in this podcast, for somebody that's a normal day now. Are you the are you and the your former friends at the independent group, the only people who know about the wobbly satellite, or was that acknowledged by Inmarsat, by Malaysia, uh, or was that just brushed under the rug? It's been acknowledged. You just have to go read the papers. I mean, they've published papers about it. The explanation is all out there. It's just that not everybody has the time or the inclination to go dive that deep oh, into it. Oh, okay. Here, hence the, hence here the, we are. Okay, so let's keep going. Here we are. Um, where were we? Okay, so the satellite's not stationary, and it's causing a velocity error of around 20 miles per hour, right. which is causing the BFO data not right. to be zero. Uh, what does that mean? Right. What it means is that the system isn't working as intended, and because it's not working as intended, 
there's actually a bit of navigational signal, you could say, that has kind of leaked into this metadata that's not supposed to have any navigational information right. in it. And this is why. Now, this is probably like the, the, the depths. We're in our little submarine okay. and we're at the bottom. Pay of the attention, map. everyone. Okay, <laughs> take your drink your yeah. coffee, people. The, the system on board MA370 that was making all of its calculations on what frequency it should transmit at assumed that the satellite was stationary. It was not. So it was not correcting for the Doppler effect fully. And so that allowed scientists, after a lot of math, they spent a lot of time working on this, and they really scratched their heads, and it took them weeks, which is a long time in math, people trying to solve math problems at times. And they eventually figured out that if, let's, let me give you an example. If the plane is going south and the satellite is also going south, then the difference in velocity between them is going to be less, right? If the plane is going north while the satellite is going south, then the Doppler shift is going to be greater because the frequency difference is going to be greater and the velocity difference is greater. And so basically, because the satellite went, basically during the time that the plane was being abducted, the satellite was going up and then it was coming down. And the plane was either going south or was going north during this whole time. And so they looked at these differences and they modeled which one would be more similar to what they saw, and it was more similar to the south. Again, the serendipity here is amazing because this wouldn't have worked had the plane been going east or west. This only, this, this conclusion only happened because the satellite was traveling parallel to the direction of the plane. That's unbelievable to me. Right. <laughs> well, it wasn't traveling exactly parallel, but there was a. St but it only it, it only worked for discriminating north south differences, and there was a large north south difference in this one. So yeah, if it had been just if it, if the question was because remember when the plane turned back, it flew basically west, yeah. and if it had just kept going west, the the BFO data would not have been able to discriminate the, the choice. Um, so, yeah, that, that is kind of interesting. Also, I wonder if it's significant that when this plane vanished from Malaysian radar and it started issuing these ping rings and these BFO values, it was right on the equator. And so one of the, one of the, one of the paths went from the equator north and the other went from the equator south. And so you got this really nice, clean signal that you might not have if the entire thing had happened like in the far northern hemisphere or something like that. So it did work out quite well. It's amazing. Keep going, please, while I continue to try to not <laughs> let my head implode. I'm following you. So I, so I and my fellow, um, you know, nerds rolled up our sleeves and did the math, and I made a spreadsheet and I made like little charts and stuff. And I and I was like, I did the math, you know, two or three times. I'm like, this is definitely I understand what they're talking about. And I made my little charts, and they look kind of like the charts that these guys put out. And I'm like, and 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 on the other people in the independent group were doing the same thing, and we were all like, you know what? That's right. This plane did go south. And so I was wrong. I was like, I, I was wrong. And so I, I sheepishly went to my editor and I, and I said, look, I'm going to write a piece for you explaining why I was wrong. And I, um, and I wrote a piece saying this is why I was wrong about the thing. And I, and I sort of said, like, I, I don't feel ashamed that I'm wrong. I, like, was working with the information that I had at the time. And now I have more information. And I reviewed it. And, I, and my guess was incorrect. I made a guess and it was wrong. I, there it is. I said, I don't feel too bad. 
And she said, thank you. They ran it. And she was like, but you know what? You actually <laughs> you actually promised me an apology. Oh, <laughs> which this is that your, your apology wasn't good enough. OK, wow. Ouch. And she was like, that was more of an explanation. I wanted a, specifically an apology. I, I was like, Ugh, really? She's like, yes. And I was like, OK. So you did it. Wonderful editor. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, Corey Bosch. And we're going to put up a link for this so you can see Jeff's mea culpa. Uh, the, the graphic that I'm showing on the screen right now is uh, titled uh, MH370 Burst Frequency Offset Analysis, 450 knots. I, okay, I'm sorry, I'm an international communications major, so I haven't taken this kind of math in a long time. I don't expect anyone to fully be able to understand this, but if you, if you do, here, here's, here's the, the graph the chart that convinced you that the plane went south. Yeah, I'll put in a link to the article too, sort of explaining the the logic a little bit. Um, It's not really that bad. I mean, it it is kind of like high school level. Yeah, I wasn't very good at high school level algebra either, but you you were, so it's okay. Um, It It was a stroke of luck in a sense that this plane was carrying an SDU that was made by Talus and not Rockwell. Yeah. Because if it was Rockwell, they would have just it just would have measured the incoming signal and flipped it around and sent it back out. I mean, you would have had a BFO zero of zero. It's only because it had this particular box and because the satellite was wobbly and because the plane had a strong north south you know discrimination between the two routes that all of this came together. So the so the, the I can't tell you how excited everybody was. The independent group was excited. The um, the scientists at Inmarsat. And later, the Australian scientists who further developed the work, they were incredibly excited. They were like, we, I mean, this is like a math nerd's wet dream. Sorry, math nerds. (laughs) I think you can say wet dream on a podcast. Because all the times your friends were like, dude, math is, math sucks. Math is like, I'm never going to use math in my, in my real life. Yeah, you win like a Nobel Prize for this. Dude, we just use math. Yeah, they solved, they solved, (laughs) they solved the mystery. And in fact, had they, you know, this is what they used to, to go look for it. And had they found the plane there. Right. Problem solved. Done. Well, I, I, I've talked to people, um, and I could probably dig up the audio if I look around, but I talked to them, and, I, and they were like, we, in our estimation, like, we had solved it. The BTO value told us which route it took, and then the BFO t- told us which, which those routes was correct, and we had a pretty tight, and, and we can put up on the screen the, 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 the search area that they generated. There was a probability, because... There's a certain kind of uncertainty in the accuracy of the signals that you're getting, um, and there's a certain there's a certain various different possible routes that you could have taken that would give you valid signals. So there's a certain kind of leeway and play in the data yeah. that doesn't tell you like exactly to, down to a micron level where the plane went, but it gives you a very very specific idea of where in the Southern Ocean this plane was last heard from, and it was presumably last heard from. We which we we'll talk about in a future episode, but like they presume it like was in the process of running out of fuel and crashing into the ocean as it sent the last signal. So we know pretty much where it, exactly where it was as it was crashing into the ocean, which is great. We have solved the greatest aviation mystery on in Earth history, right? By I think those mathematicians were math. probably high-fiving each other because at this point, all they would have had to do was put their $350 million in resources into searching in that giant spot or small spot, and they would have found the plane. No more podcast. Problem solved. We're done. Let's go home. But alas, there's so many reasons. There's so many reasons why we shouldn't be having this podcast right now. In a way, I mean, in many ways, I wish we weren't, Jeff, because then 
we wouldn't have to keep going to where we're we're heading with no it's not that well it's it's not that the 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 bad things wouldn't have happened if all we're assuming that all the bad things that happened happened but we wouldn't have any we wouldn't have this whole 10-year-long idea of like the plane sent these signals that let us use our clever math to figure out where it was and now all i have to do is go find it yeah that's the part that is all dependent on this thing the sense of we're going to find it and and the sense of confidence was overwhelming we started this whole podcast. You remember, remember back in episode one, where um, uh, one of the people attached to Peter Waring, who was a lieutenant at the time, attached to the search effort. He was like, every morning he got up and went to work, fully expecting that they were going to find the plane that day. And there was a one of the there was a guy uh, attached to the effort who was quoted in the papers, and I often quoted it. He basically said, "We have um, a bottle of champagne chilling in the fridge because we know that we've solved the the math is like." This perfect math problem. Now, I'm, I'm sure you remember. It sounds like you don't have fond memories of math class. Really, but you no. remember having like, you have like, your teacher would ask you this like complicated problem about Billy has two goats and the goats move 10 miles an hour and they're over a bridge that's 10 miles long and there's a bee that's flying. it, And you get all this information and you like, and you do, you do it in the math and it comes out and it's like 10 miles an hour. And you feel so good because it's like you did all the math and you get this great, clean, nice answer. Boom. It's so satisfying. Um, and so they were 100% confident that they, well, not 100%. At one point, one of the uh, Australian ministers said, we are 97% confident that we're going to find the plane in this area that the mathematicians had. And I like those odds because 97% is good enough to dedicate the resources that they did. So as bad as I am at math, I'm a little bit better with my words. So I believe this would be a denouement of, <laughs> as we wrap up this episode, like, it seems seems like it's pretty obvious from here. It seems like... Now all we got to do is go search for it. This was the high watermark of everyone's mood. Yeah, it's a high watermark of everyone's mood, but the denouement for for our theory, because um, it turns out mm, not so much. Well, there's there's more twists to come. There's always more twists to come. But at this point, we didn't know that. We, we had every reason to be optimistic, and we had every reason to think that we had cracked the mystery. We had solved it. And we were going to go get the plane, and then we would pull the plane off, off the seabed, and we would find the black boxes that had recorded all the data, and the cockpit voice recorder, which had you know the conversations, hopefully explaining it. And we would be and this because remember, we talked about Air France 447 before, which took two years to find on the seabed in the Atlantic, and they didn't know, they couldn't explain why this plane did these strange things that it did. They pulled it off the seabed, they they decoded the black box and like oh they were able to hear the conversation among the crew members explaining their confusion and what we, they thought one thing was happening another thing was happening and the, they could actually they had data multiple times per second of what the exactly what the plane was doing and they were able to recreate exactly what happened to this plane and just personally jeff i mean you're a professional journalist and you are writing for some very legitimate publications you just had to give an apology you just had to write an apology it was actually that slight. one was slight. Okay, but I mean, these are some of the publications yeah. that you've written for. Uh, right. So you know, you were kind of—I don't know—did you feel like your career was in jeopardy at this point, or did you think you'd just get over this and keep on writing? I mean, you ha- it, there's nothing wrong with—you know—I didn't say I know that the plane went north, and everyone else who says otherwise is an idiot. I did not say that. I said. I have reasons to think it went north, and these are what those reasons are. Um, you can't, you know, I think the job of a journalist is to help people understand the world, and part of understanding the world is having some expectation of where the world is going, right? And, um, 
you, you know, you just have to explain, you have to use your expertise to try to explain to people why it might be this way versus why it might be that way. And I think ideally you understand both why you why your uh, your idea might be right and you should understand why it might be wrong. And I think in the po- course of this podcast, I want to try to give people an idea of all the different things that could be possible and what the arguments for and against each one. Yeah, that's a really um, magnanimous and generous way of um, describing your experience because as a publisher of a um, an online magazine that with a million readers a month, every time we have to issue a correction or retraction, it's not as it's not only humiliating, but it also hurts our business because our credibility is what drives our engagement, our audience, our readership, and ultimately the advertisers who choose to spend their money with us. So, I I, I, I just no, trying to put myself I mean, in the place I, I, of where your editor was, where you were. Um, when you were I don't think that's what we were dealing with though. Okay. If you're talking about a baseball season and you say this could be the year that uh, what's the mil- what's the, the Brewers? Are you kidding me? They were in the playoffs. The Brewers. Yeah. All right. Okay. The, uh, they, of course they're in the playoffs. They're not currently in the playoffs, um, but they were in the playoffs. <laughs> Unlike your Yankees, okay. this is I, I'm going to have to issue a retraction for my for my Brewers. I actually now I want okay. the retraction. Here, yeah, I'm sorry. Go on. Okay, okay. But here's the analogy. I'm a sports writer. I'm like, it's opening day, and I think that this is going to be the year that the Brewers take it all. And because we have got a great pitching lineup, our batters have brand new bats, our uniforms have never been cleaner. And it's like, I have all the reasons to think that, no, obviously I don't know that the Brewers are going to like get it to the World Series, but like, I, these are the reasons why I'm optimistic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think that's what I was doing with the Northern thing. I was explaining why, the, why, there's, why there is some reason to think at a time when we didn't know if it went north or south. And everyone was kind of saying it went south. I said, hang on, don't be so quick. Now, many, many times in my career, I've written articles where I'm like, hey, don't be so quick. It might, it might not be this. It might be the other one. And because the thing that I'm saying, don't sell it too short, actually turns out to not be true, it's still valid, I think. It's not the same First of all, writer, not a sports writer, because your, 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 <laughs> your, your baseball analogy I'm was... Sorry, I'm sorry for disrespecting That's okay. Um, but now again... As, Wait, was my analogy bad? Well, the, 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 the cleanliness of their uniforms isn't specifically tied to their success and their win-loss ratio. But, but, what, but, but, but what I'm saying here is actually a serious point. You weren't writing these as opinion pieces. Right. You were writing these as news pieces, as feature pieces. And I... I you're right. I wouldn't mind if some some prognosticator said the Brewers are going to win the World Series. What I would mind is if the beat writer for the Brewers came out and, and announced that and, and turned out to be totally wrong. So I do think you were like hung out to dry a little bit. And it's not all your fault. I mean, there is new information out there. But you, when you write a news story, when you write a feature story, uh, you have to sound like you either have to sound like you know what you're talking about and use sources that sound like they know what they're talking about, or you have to say, we have no idea what we're talking about, but this is what people are saying. And I think that people don't really understand the role of journalism in this sort of stuff. These were not opinion pieces by you, right? I mean... You touched a nerve here. There are gray areas. No, I'd say, I mean, I, it might be a little... You know, to coin a phrase, it might be a little too insider baseball for the general public, but there are different uses of let me put it this way as we move around in the world we're trying to understand what the world is like 
And we don't always, in fact, rarely is it sort of binary, black and white. We can say it's either this or that. We're kind of groping our way towards some kind of sense of what is true and what is not true. And as, I mean, MA370 is the perfect example of, listen, at the end, it's unlikely that we're going to get to the end of how many episodes we do about this and say this is definitively what happened to the plane. That's not the goal of this podcast. The goal is to try to clarify for people what we know and what it might mean. I mean, this whole podcast is kind of the, is kind of a sort of multiplication of the kind of state of, of uncertainty that we found ourselves when I wrote that first piece for Slate. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think that's actually a really good place to pause this one because we are getting a lot of excellent feedback and we're reading it and people are telling us we're full of shit or people are telling us that we're, <laughs> we're, we're onto something. But we are not doing this as a traditional news story. This is a conversation that's evolving. You know, we talked last night and you do- dropped some new news on me that you, you, you had found out. And like you're going to flesh it out and you're going to work right. on it. But nine and a half years later, there's still stuff to talk about. So, you know, this, this isn't an opinion podcast. It's not a news podcast. It's a conversational podcast about a news event and all the things that surround it. We do have a goal, a very specific goal that I think we can arrive at with precision, which is we want to try to bring clarity to a conversation that is clouded by misinformation and just vagueness. I was listening to a podcast that somebody else did on this subject, and they were like, well, there was this theory, there was that theory, and like, I don't know if to believe this or that. And it was just very kind of um, model. It was all like over the didn't place. Didn't have a clear idea of like what the yeah. was. It was an hour and a half. It was it was an hour and a half long, Jeff. And it was just people kind of talking out their asses about what they feel <laughs> like may or may not have happened. And I was like, this right. is what this is what the dialogue is. This is not what we're going to do here. I feel like that kind of approach to MA three seventy has been unfortunately completely dominant. Like most of the discussion, if you if you take the mass of all the articles and all the documentaries that have been made, they tend to take this kind of unsystematic, sort of vague, like lumping together credible people with not credible people. We're going to try to sort the wheat from the chaff and go through it. That's why we're going through episode by episode. We took a little detour last week, and I'm sure we'll take detours in the future to try to respond to people's concerns and questions. But our goal is, I think, to bring a clarity that has not been achieved Yet, I think that the day will come, hopefully, when people say, like, I want to understand this mystery. I'm going to list it, listen to Andy and Jeff describe it, maybe go to the auxiliary material in the show page at um, deepdivemh370.com, and we can bring a clarity to what has been kind of famously chaotic. And this is our longest one yet, so I hope we didn't bore anyone. I thought this was, I thought it was our most interesting one yet, Jeff, but, you know, I guess it doesn't matter what I think. You always say that, and I can only assume it's because you are actually getting more and more interesting. But, um, you know, I just like I just listen, like hearing myself it's, talk. It's, what can I say? <laughs> and I like hearing you talk. I, it's, 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 it's entertaining for me. Yeah. I, I and I like hearing you talk too. I think it's it's fun. Um, I, I love getting feedback from our listeners, from readers. Um, I think people are raising really um, pointed questions that are that are really worth asking. Um, and this is a collective effort. This isn't just you and me. I, we, the whole point is to bring people Yeah, in. so what are we going to talk about in episode eight? I, I truly have no idea. We are going to talk about what happens after everything seems to have been kind of done and dusted with the BFO data. And we start to, um, some other strange things start to happen. I think we should talk about the acoustic pings. Okay. 
That's my All right. By All right. Change. Well, again, we're recording these about a week in advance, uh, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little bit more. So we'll sharpen our pencils and we'll get right on that. Um, again, uh, we want to point out that there are lots of different ways to consume this podcast. Uh, you can be listening to it on Apple Podcasts. You can be watching it on Facebook. You can be watching it on YouTube. You can be reading about it on our website uh, and our Substack platform. You can subscribe to our newsletter because there's also going to be extra stuff that we're sending out um, that uh, just for our subscribers. So it's not a pitch for money, but um, FYI, you'll get something extra. Uh, obviously, we want you to do the liking and the subscribing and the clicking and the telling people about it. Uh, I got to come up with a different way to say that each time, Jeff, because the like and subscribe thing just sounds a little played out. I mean, people are people who listen to podcasts, I think, are used to it. Um, you know, it's 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 very helpful to us uh, in making this podcast if people encourage us by liking uh, and subscribing and, and, and leaving comments. It helps the ratings on the um on the social media and it helps more people find us, which is really what we're trying to do. We want to try to bring clarity to what is really an important mystery that not really hardly anybody really understands and can see the clarity of it. And we want to bring people. Well, I feel like you made me understand this episode. So thank you, Jeff. Okay. And thank you. See you next week. Yeah. See you next week and see, see everybody next week. And and thanks for listening. Bye-bye.